Good morning. I'm really happy to be here with you. I'm going to move back enough so I can see everybody. Let me know if that doesn't work and if there's too much ringing from the microphone. I'm always a little nervous preaching, but uh, I love it. So I don't know if any of you in the choir have that feeling too. You're up here, you're singing, you're like, oh, I'm terrified, but I love it. Um, some friends of ours, Katie and Steve, live really close to a, a wonderful produce market. And not too long ago, they went to the market and there were these watermelons, beautiful watermelons on sale. They were only $2. And so they said, we have to buy one of these. So they bought one of them um, and they took it home. But while Katie was loading the watermelon into their car, she noticed something kind of strange about this watermelon. Uh, it was making kind of a sloshing sound. And she thought, Maybe it's just really juicy. <laughs> so, so they brought it home, and they became more and more curious about like the sound. Whenever they moved it, or especially if they shook it, it just the sloshing was just driving them crazy. So they decided to cut into it, and this is what happened. It worked earlier when we tested it. the whole inside of the watermelon had liquefied. And apparently it didn't smell very good either. <laughs> the strange thing about this though was that the outside of the watermelon looked totally perfect. There were no rotten spots on it. It looked like a good watermelon. Sometimes relationships can be like that watermelon. They seem solid, full of promise, a blessing. But then suddenly, sometimes, some of them, once in a while, can begin to disintegrate from the inside. I remember my senior year of college, I was dating a girl and I thought, this could be it. Like, she might be the one. I, I don't have to be alone anymore. But then she just suddenly broke it off. I mean, it came out of nowhere. I didn't see it coming. And the pain was, was deep. The disappointment I felt was so real. I thought we were really close, but we weren't. I'm now happily married to someone else. I have three kids and a fourth on the way. It will be the last one. <laughs> And I'm really glad that that other relationship didn't work out, but in the moment, I didn't feel that way. And I know that I'm not alone in feeling that pain when you get sideswiped by something that you thought was really, really good, something you thought was going really well. When conflict comes, when hurtful things are said, when hurtful things are done, when sometimes we discover even deceit in a relationship, sometimes even betrayal. 
we're left holding this shell of what seemed to be so good just a little while before. I wonder if that's ever happened to you. I think if you're human, it probably has. But sometimes we're not the ones receiving the heartbreak. Sometimes we're the ones giving the heartbreak. David, from the Bible, the second king of Israel, is called in scripture a man after God's own heart. Or you might say, a man who shares God's desires. God chose David, Jesse's son, to be the new king of Israel because when things got tough, their first king, Saul, Kish's son, broke trust with God. God decided David would be different. And for the most part, he was. David was responsible for bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem and setting up the creation of the temple there that was so central to the Hebrew faith and practice. David listened to God and responded. God listened to David and responded. It was a good relationship. But then one spring, David went off the rails. He broke possibly five out of the ten commandments all in one fell swoop, including adultery and murder. David's betrayal of trust would foreshadow a long saga of Israel breaking trust with God. Unlike many times to come in the history of Israel, though, David eventually owned up to his betrayal. This psalm, Psalm 51, is attributed to him. It's a confession. It's a plea for reconciliation with a God that he loved. And it contains what I believe are some of the most heartbreaking words in all of scripture. Please don't cast me out of your presence. Please don't throw me away. I can't stop thinking about those words. As I meditated on this psalm, I almost tangibly felt the pain of the lost intimacy ringing out in those words. To love someone, to be close to someone, and then to all of a sudden find yourself far, far away from them can be crushing. And the guilt when it's your fault, can be almost too much to bear. Losing intimacy is like coming back to your favorite place, the place that you loved most as a child, but then seeing that the walls have collapsed. And now there's a big fence around it, chained and locked so you can't even get close. And it's covered with weeds and dead things, a place of violence, lost intimacy. Please don't throw me away from your presence. Don't let this be the end. As I meditated longer, though, I 
I discovered, I noticed something really beautiful. Beautiful because of its wisdom and its honesty. I noticed a repetition in the poetry that I'd never noticed before. I've read this psalm many times, sung it in church many times. I noticed the word spirit repeating three times. Maybe you're more observant than I am, and you've seen that before. But it was a revelation to me as I, as I studied and read this psalm. It's first in verse 10, and then again in verse 11, and then again in verse 12. Hebrew poetry often uses this kind of parallel structure to say, pay attention to this, and also to give an idea shape and contour. Even though I've read this psalm in the past, I hadn't noticed it. And I recognized in these three spirits that the psalmist cries out for, I recognized them as powerful and necessary elements to restoring broken intimacy. So I'm exploring that, the idea that together they might be called the three spirits of intimacy. And perhaps together, you and I can explore this and see if this is a good name for them. These three spirits paint a picture for me of what restored intimacy can look like. And to me, it looks a lot like a restored, abandoned home. So to the first spirit, I gave the name Spirit of the Strong Walls. A strong wall is sure. It's it's steady. It's faithful. It stands up to storms. It can carry weight without breaking without bowing, without bulging. To restore a home, it has to have strong walls. The psalmist cries out, Create a clean heart for me, God. Put a new, faithful spirit deep inside me. A faithful spirit. A steadfast spirit. The psalmist says, I need that kind of spirit deep down in my foundations. Trustworthy, immovable. The spirit of the strong walls. The psalmist is almost saying, I know that in order for you to trust me again, I have to have the kind of walls that don't rot, that don't crumble. Something that you can rely on no matter what. That kind of spirit. The second spirit, I named spirit of the inner sanctum. Inside those strong walls, there needs to be a special place where friends can open up their hearts. It's a place set aside from the storms and the chaos and the noise outside. It's a place where there are no shields up and people can be vulnerable with each other. Here the cry of the psalmist is, please don't throw me away from your presence. Please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. A Holy Spirit. In Hebrew, the words for spirit and breath, as you may know, are the same word. So you might call this kind of spirit then, in a poetic sense, the special whisper. A sacred (sighs) exhale. 
Please don't take that away from me. I need your voice. A breath like no other that energizes my soul and gives me strength that I didn't know I had. In the Hebrew scriptures, Holy Spirit is this force from God that floods a normal person and allows them to speak the words of God. The prophets had it. It's alignment when two spirits are moving in sync in the same direction. Two minds sharing thoughts. A channel between two souls. And it's a terrible thing to lose. But restored, it is perhaps one of the most wonderful things that we can experience in this life. The third spirit I named Spirit of the Fruitful Garden. Outside the strong walls and the inner sanctum is a joyful place of abundance. It's a place of generosity, of willingness to give. It's a place with a strong desire to include and to share. The third cry of the psalmist is, return the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me with a willing spirit. Joy of salvation, willing spirit. This is a place of jubilee where oppression and violence are gone. In the scriptures, salvation is about liberation. When the yoke of political oppression like Pharaoh, the captivity of Babylon, the conquest of Rome are taken away and lifted off. Salvation, though, is also about oppression lifted that we've created for ourselves. The fallout of turning away from God and worshiping ourselves and often in that oppressing our neighbor. Experiencing liberation, though, is not just a salvation from something. It's a journey toward something. Because when you leave the captivity of Pharaoh, you go into the land of milk and honey. When you leave the exile of Babylon, you return to rebuild the temple, rebuild the walls of Jerusalem so that you can have peace again and worship. When you are persecuted by Rome... You spread throughout the world and become a catalyst that transforms everything. Restore the joy of your liberation to me. Free me from the burden of my betrayal. Would you seal up the past in a box and just sink it into the deepest part of the ocean? Clear away the choking weeds and the vines and transform this into a garden full of celebration and feasting where there's always enough to share. I want to be generous again. I want to give to you instead of take. I've received so much and now I want to give back. The fruitful garden, a place of liberation and a heart to give. So faithful spirit, holy spirit, willing spirit, the strong walls, 
the inner sanctum, the fruitful garden, a picture of restored intimacy. But how do we get there? We know what we want. We know what should this, this should look like, the vision of wholeness. But in front of us is still a place of desolation and brokenness. So how do we get to that place of wholeness? Last month I had the opportunity to, to visit Israel for the first time in my life. I rode on a boat across the Sea of Galilee I prayed in Jerusalem on the Sabbath when the sun was setting over the western wall. I touched the river Jordan with my own hands. I also, though, rode on a bus past minefields. I prayed for teenage soldiers at the northern border with Lebanon. And I touched the wall, part of the fence that surrounds all of the West Bank. It was a complicated experience, both full of beauty and the promise of chaos. On the last day of the trip, I went to Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Memorial in Jerusalem. At the memorial is a museum, a white triangle. When you stand on one side, just like this center aisle, you can see all the way to the other end, but you can't go there. Not directly. To get to the end, you must wind your way back and forth through all of the different halls. Each hall tells a piece of the story of what happened to the Jewish people in Europe when Hitler and the Nazis began to get more and more power and take more and more territory. I learned that although many people died in the ghettos and the concentration camps, the Holocaust didn't begin in earnest until the German army began its assault against Russia. As the German army moved east, they were followed by death squads who rounded up all of the Jewish people living in every town under the guise of registration, and they took all of them out into fields, and they shot all of them. And then they began the death camps. This was the Nazi final solution. Their plan for killing every single Jewish person that lived in Europe. You don't leave that museum unscathed. It is a testament to the darkness that humans are capable of creating. It is also a testament, though, to something else. One of the last halls is dedicated to the ones Jewish people call the righteous among the nations. These are the people who are non-Jewish, who risked their own lives to hide and protect and save Jewish persons during the war. In this hall are the names and some of the pictures of those righteous. I was struck by two things in that hall. The first was the record of how many people each of them saved down to the person. And the second thing that struck me is how few, relatively, how few of these people there were. Why them? Why did they get involved when other people 
turned away? Why did they help when so many others didn't? I think the answer to that question is tied together with the answer to the question, how do I get to a place where the broken is whole again? How do we get to wholeness? What can we do? Do we need to prove ourselves somehow? Do we need to do something heroic to find that wholeness? I think the answer is just a couple steps further into this psalm. What we need is not another sacrifice. What we need is something much more profound. The psalmist proclaims, you don't want sacrifices. If I gave an entirely burned offering, you wouldn't be pleased. A broken spirit is my sacrifice, God. You won't despise a heart, God, that is broken and crushed. There is, it seems, a fourth spirit of intimacy, the humble spirit, what I might call the spirit of the borrowed shoes. To walk in intimacy around the strong walls, into the inner sanctum, through the fruitful garden, you need the spirit. We need the spirit that Jesus had, who left everything behind to become one of us, to see through our eyes. We have to walk in borrowed shoes. Walking in borrowed shoes means asking yourself, like the righteous among the nations, what if that was me? Walking in borrowed shoes means to recognize and admit how our own actions have contributed to the breakdown. Walking in borrowed shoes means to stop trying to keep things even in our close relationships, tit for tat, but instead to commit to being the one to go first, to take the first steps towards reconciliation. Walking in borrowed shoes means to leave behind the belief that says, why should I have to? I paid my dues. Curiously, walking this way, walking in borrowed shoes, has an effect on the heart. It unclogs arteries. It softens calcified corners. And it opens up valves you never knew you had. Walking in borrowed shoes also has an effect on others. It brings life where before there was death. Directly after the psalmist identifies these spirits of intimacy comes the hopeful outcome of restored relationship. Verse 13 promises, Then I will teach wrongdoers your ways, and sinners will come back to you. The one who is restored to intimacy becomes an agent of restoration to others. This is the hope of the gospel, the restoration of all things to God's self, wholeness, finally, wholeness. So may you seek out and may God give you the spirit of the strong walls so that you can remain trustworthy. May you seek out and may God give you the spirit of the inner sanctum so that you can create safe spaces where the sacred breath that energizes souls can do its work. May God give you the spirit of the fruitful garden 
so that you can be ready and willing to give. And may God give you the spirit of the borrowed shoes so that you can see through others' eyes and know the joy and their pain and bring healing. Let's pray. Jesus, you walked in our shoes. You know our pain. You had our body. You know what it's like. Thank you for coming and doing the work that you've done so that we can know God and be forgiven of our deceits and betrayals and be filled with the joy of salvation. May you fill us. May you soften our hearts. Make us willing to give. Make us strong. Make us fruitful. Make us safe for others who are broken. And Lord, as we come this morning and share with you in this table, this communion, I pray that you would do the work of healing the brokenness in us and healing the broken relationships in our lives and helping us be ready to do whatever it takes to work toward wholeness. I pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.